0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Tonight we're going to be looking at church discipline. We've been looking at church life together. And we've been talking about the Baptist vision of regenerate church membership. We've been seeing that that uh, is not merely a Baptist vision, but a biblical vision. That the church was meant to be uh, comprised of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the church runs into difficulties when it forgets that. When the church is mixed, when there are both believers and unbelievers together, everything becomes difficult in the church. The church loses its witness in the world and its ability to do ministry in the world now we have discussed over the last few times together as we've looked at this a church life together a whole-blooded life together that we are to be interacting together as brothers and sisters in christ and i brought out 15 different verbs we talked about them we saw how they should be active in the church life and so i have a kind of a picture of a narrow gate Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. I, I didn't have time to put this on computer. Maybe some at some point I'll, I'll give you a chart. You know, some say if you can't chart it, don't believe it. But, you know, there's a I have this image of a narrow gate. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And so the Baptist vision, I think is an appropriate one, is also a Christian vision, the vision of Jesus Christ, that to enter the Christian life and to enter the church should be through a narrow gate. Nowadays, the church has thrown open the gate very wide and broad. And so we're we're desiring always a huge crowd of people coming in. There's nothing wrong with a huge group of people as long as they're regenerate, as long as they're born again. But Jesus said we must enter through a narrow gate. And so Baptists sought to do that through believer baptism. There was going to be a a period of of investigation in in what God had done in the the person's life. And the person had to be able to give a a testimony of regenerating faith. There had to be evidence of being born again. And for membership also, uh, the people, if they had been baptized at another church, would have to give evidence of regeneration. Even if they had been baptized, even to be a member, you had to give evidence. Of regeneration and so that the, the Baptist sought to to make that gate into which you entered the church narrow just as the gate into which we enter the kingdom of God was narrow it wasn't closed of course not we wouldn't want to close the door because it says in Matthew 23 Jesus said woe to you scribes and Pharisees you hypocrites you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces you yourselves don't enter and you won't let others enter who are trying to and so the door should not be shut just as the door to Noah's Ark should not be shut. Who shut the door to Noah's Ark? It was God who shut that door. And he's the only one that can do it. And so when the time of opportunity ends, God will shut that door and there'll be no more opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so God is the one alone who can shut the gate, but the gate should be narrow. And the Baptists saw that and they sought to make membership therefore somewhat difficult. It wasn't easy to just join a Baptist church. You had to have to give evidence of regeneration. After that came life together. Those 15 verbs. Well, let's talk about what I mean by that. When when you enter through the narrow gate and you begin church life together, when things are going normally, when things are going to go well, you're going to be receiving this. You're you're going to be teaching, receiving teaching. There's going to be teaching and instruction. You're going to be comforting each other as we go through difficult things in life. There's going to be times of honoring and praising people who do well, who serve the Lord well. All of that is biblical and supported. We're supposed to be encouraging each other, giving each other courage. We're supposed to be praising each other. We're supposed to be training each other. So older men train younger men. Older women are training younger women. We're setting examples for each other. There's a a sense in which some are saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example. These are the things that are normally going on. And we're going to be edifying each other, using spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up or edifies. So we're going to be building each other up. That's category one. That's when things are going well. You're walking along the straight and narrow, right? But it doesn't always go that way, does it? And so you begin to drift a little bit in your Christian life you begin to accept some habits into your life that aren't healthy you begin to think in a way that is unhealthy perhaps in your life or perhaps in your doctrine these are the two categories of of life that we're looking out for we're watching over Paul says to Timothy watch your life and your doctrine closely these are the two things and so in your life maybe you begin to drift in your doctrine, maybe you begin to drift, and so the body of Christ gets active, right? If you're in a healthy body, the body's going to be looking out for you, and and then in come these words: correct, right? And exhort and admonish. Correct would be, hey, you're drifting a bit. I, I'm seeing that you're not you're not doing the things you used to be doing. I don't see you attending as much. Uh, well, we've gotten busy. Well. I'm just concerned. That's all. And, and there's an adjustment, a correction that goes on. And the course is corrected before it starts to veer too much. Stage three. Okay? What happens next? Suppose people continue in sin beyond the correction, beyond the admonishment. Then what? Well, then the church needs to get even more busy, right? The community comes together and says, we have a problem. At that point, a brother or a sister would come and warn you. Are there warnings in the New Testament? Oh, yes, many. All those warnings from Israel's history. You know, you're talking about warnings. Look what happened to them. Don't be like them. Look what happened to Saul. Don't be like him. Look what happened to the unbelieving Jews who didn't enter the promised land. Don't be like them, etc. So there's a warning, a a sense of urgency. The the line is is crawling up. We're into the yellow region, perhaps edging up into the red zone. And so the church is getting active. Then somebody may come and reprove you or rebuke you at that point. This is healthy church life. It may sound alien, but this is what God intended. And it's what we intend too, isn't it? Because the, I mean, the church covenant that we read, I, I circled here this section here. We read it this morning. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love. That's not lording it over anybody. We're just watching each other. And you're being watched too while you're doing watching. We're all watching each other. And when things are going well, we're going to be teaching, instructing, comforting, honoring, encouraging, praising, training, and edifying. But when things aren't going well, that's when other things need to happen. And they don't do it, do they? We don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's negative. And the church suffers as a result. Now, what's stage four? Stage four is church discipline, commonly known. I think all of this is part of the discipling, disciplining life of the church. But when you traditionally think of church discipline... Other other fellowships might call it excommunication, and this is the topic that's before before us tonight. And very few churches do it anymore, and yet the Bible is very clear about it. And so I think it's important for us to look at what the Bible says about church discipline and try to understand it. Now, a quote that I read earlier um, this week, and some of you have heard this as well, is from John Cassian. He was one of the church fathers. He lived in the 4th century A.D., and this is what he said. What is pure is corrupted much more quickly than what is corrupt is purified. Let me say that again. What is pure is corrupted much more quickly than what is corrupt is made pure or purified. Isn't that true? It's much easier for something good to go sour than something that's become sour or impure to get back straight again. Very, very difficult. It's especially true in church discipline. You know why? Because the church won't want it done. And yet it is the church that must do it. Do you see that? It's not pastor discipline. It's not deacon discipline. It's not elder discipline. It's not friend discipline or brother and sister. It's church discipline. We're going to talk more about what that means. And if the church as a whole is corrupted, it won't do it. It'll leave it undone. And so then we've got a problem. Now, I want to begin our biblical study tonight by looking at Hebrews chapter 12. Now, some of you who are in the Acts seminar will see the connection here. Uh, In Acts, we've been looking at the Christian family. We've talked about, about parental discipline of children. And what I said on Wednesday night is that the foundation of parental discipline is God's discipline of us. Well, the overlap here is that the foundation of church discipline is God's discipline of us. And the best text for that, I think, is in Hebrews chapter 12. Now in Hebrews chapter 12, the author there is talking about sin. It's talking about a life of endurance that we're supposed to be running. We have to run the race with endurance. I talked on Wednesday night about the marathon. The Christian life is much more of a marathon than it is a sprint. Some of us have an easy time. We come to faith in Christ and are immediately martyred or die. And so we have a short life. And that's easy because you immediately go to heaven, right? Isn't that wonderful? Can you imagine workers uh, uh, working on the assembly line being told that they could leave after an hour of labor? Full day's pay now, but you just go and, and, and you're free. It's a different way of looking at death, I know. But that's not the way it is for most of us now, is it? Most of us come to faith in Christ, and now we begin that long and toilsome journey to the celestial city. It's a long journey, and it is not easy. It's a hard way. And so we are called in Hebrews 12 to run the race with endurance, with patience, with perseverance. And why? Because God is doing his work with patience and perseverance, isn't he? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. When I was a younger Christian, I always assumed that I would not die, but rather that the Lord would return during my lifetime. Right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. And we should always be ready for the Lord to return. But now as I get older, I'm seeing it's more likely that I'll go the way of all flesh and that I probably will die just like all the other generations of Christians as well. But we don't know that. We may yet be the final generation. We need to be ready at all times. But the fact of the matter is that the Lord's patience means salvation for generations perhaps yet unborn, right? And so we're going to let God be God. And if We still have another half a millennia or more of history to go. That's up to God. He can do that. So we have to run our race with perseverance, don't we? We've got a race set before us. Now, why would you run a race with cinder blocks dragging behind you with a chain? Why would you run a marathon that way? And yet it says here, it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, a race marked out for us. We encumber ourselves with sin, don't we? It entangles us. It trips us up. It is a weight around our waist, and we must get rid of it. People who have a low view of sin will think of church discipline as unthinkable. But people who understand that sin is devastating and dangerous to individual Christians and to the church body as a whole will say, God, do in me and in us what is necessary to get rid of this hindrance. Because we can't run this race with endurance, with sin dragging around our ways, can we? We've got to have it out. We've got to get rid of it. And so God calls on us to throw off sin. And then he says in verse four, in your struggle against sin, i mean, Hebrews 12 verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Isn't that true? You haven't fought like a warrior to the point of shedding your blood rather than caving into temptation. Only one did that fully and that was Jesus. Jesus would rather die than sin. Isn't that true? What was set before Jesus all his life? the cross. And when the time came in Gethsemane for him to face up to it, he had a choice, didn't he? And he would literally rather die at the cross than disobey his heavenly Father. And so in his struggle against sin, he went right to the point of shedding his blood. We're not quite that committed, are we? And so because of that we tend to drift into sin. We tend to say yes sometimes to temptation. We give in. And so at that moment we're in danger. Sin is always dangerous. And God mobilizes at that point, doesn't he? He says in verse 5, You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And so he brings discipline onto you when you begin to drift in the Christian life. What kind of disciplines? What might happen? What might God do if you start to drift? What do you think? It depends. So he measures out discipline appropriate to what's necessary. What's fair game for discipline? Anything. Literally anything in your life. Is that scary? Make a list, as I said on Wednesday night, make a list of the top 30 most important things or people to you in your life. It's all fair game. You understand that? God is willing to do anything with any of those things, your job, your family, your own health, uh, things you're hoping for in the near future and in the distant future, financial issues, anything is fair game for discipline. It's not just a matter like with parents of a paddling or something like that or a timeout or other things, right? God is willing to do anything so that you be pure and holy. And that's been proven in church history. He will do that. Now, we must not, as the Bible says, make light of the Lord's discipline as though it's a light thing. It's not important. It's not significant. Neither should we lose heart under it. That means to grow discouraged, despondent, as though God has cast us off. We should not make light of it on the one hand. That means forget that it's God that's doing it. Neither should we... Grow discouraged, despondent, and be crushed under it. We should instead bear up under it, and at the proper time, he will lift us up. That is God's discipline of individual Christians, and it is the foundation also of church discipline. Do you see? If God's doing it, it's okay for the church to do it. More than just okay, it's commanded, as we'll see. But the foundation of it is this. Now look down at verse 14. It says there in the NIV, Make every effort... Greek literally with translation would be pursue or run after, chase, chase or pursue, make every effort to, number one, live in peace with all men, and number two, to be holy. And then he comments on the second one, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now that is serious, isn't it? Because it's a kind of holiness that you pursue, a kind of holiness that you make an effort in. Is this justification holiness here? No, our works and our efforts don't fit in there. This has to do with sanctification, which inevitably follows justification. And so if you are not pursuing holiness, you're not justified. If you're not putting sin to death, you're not a Christian. And so therefore, the Christian life after justification is one of warfare against sin, isn't it? And if you're not fighting, you're not saved. And so you should be saying, gee, if I can't see God unless I have this kind of holiness, I better get busy. This is a serious thing, and I want any help I can have in this matter. And yet our pride makes it so hard. A brother or sister comes gently and says, I see a problem, I'm concerned, and we get prideful, don't we? We don't want any part of it. Conversely, we don't want to be involved in it. We don't want to do it because you'd be a hypocrite if you had big issues in your life and went and pointed something out in somebody else's life, right? And so we give up on it entirely. But Hebrews 12:14 is a serious verse, isn't it? Pursue holiness without holiness no one will see the Lord. And so we must be diligent in this matter. Now God's discipline of us is the foundation of church discipline. That's the case I'm making right here. Did God ever discipline the church? Well, Yes he did. Look at Acts chapter 5 with me. We've been through this before. But let's look at it. This was church discipline done directly by God. Now the church had a role certainly but it was God who did it. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear. Suppose you had been in that church meeting when that happened. Wouldn't you have responded that same way? Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about this. Then in verse 6, it says a young man came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also at that moment she fell down at his feet and died then the young men came in and finding her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband and here it is again verse 11 great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events and so this is church discipline done directly by God wasn't a matter that they kept some of the money for themselves that was fine Peter makes that case very plainly they didn't need to sell their house and they didn't need to give the full amount but they needed to not lie about it now that was the issue Now you think, have I ever lied? Well, that's serious. And so that's why fear fell on the group. They said, God is a holy God. Just like when God struck Uzzah dead, didn't great fear come on David at that moment? And he said, how can I ever bring the ark into Jerusalem? There's a sense of the holiness of God. Anytime we sin, God could break out against us. Do you realize that? And be just? Because the wages of sin is death. And so any discipline short of that is certainly grace and mercy. You understand that. That's God. It's it's a serious thing. Now keep reading, though. Very interesting. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Now listen, look at verse 13. No one else dared to join (laughs) them. Why is that? Why did nobody want to join that group? They heard about Ananias and Sapphira. There was a sense of the holiness of the church, Right? God's holy people. Aren't we God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved? We are a holy people, a people peculiar to God. We are his prized possession. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Do you see that? When the church does its holiness work, its reputation goes up in the world. The, the, The world respects the church, even though it may not want to join initially. Well, does that mean church growth has ended now? That's it, shut the door. God shut it. He killed Ananias and Sapphira. We haven't had anyone join since. Is that what happened? Oh, look at the very next verse. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Do you see that? A holy church is a powerful church, an evangelistically alive church, a church that can transform its culture. Not a church being transformed by its culture. Not a church being conformed to the world surrounding it, but rather transforming the world by being holy like God is holy. All right, so so far we've established, number one, Hebrews 12, that church discipline is founded on God's discipline of us as individuals and as a group. Secondly, that God acted out in church discipline in history. In Acts chapter 5, we've seen that. Now we have to look, do we have a command from God to be involved in this? Do we have a command of God to do church discipline? And the answer is yes. Look at Matthew chapter 18. Now, Matthew 18, you know, I wish we had time to go into the context because you're familiar with 1815, but I think it would be beneficial for you to read through the whole chapter The chapter begins with a a, a dispute over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. You remember that. And then a little child is brought to stand among them by Jesus. And Jesus talks about humbling and and, uh, entering uh, like like a child, the kingdom of God. And and so it's a matter of humility. If you want to be great, you need to be humble like a child. And then suddenly at verse 6, he deals with the issue of sin. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Do you think of sin that seriously? Do you realize it's that serious that it would be better for a tempter to be drowned than to sin or to lead somebody to sin? That would be better for them. That's what Jesus said. And then he says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Woe is a a prophetic word of judgment and condemnation. Woe to the world because of temptations. Woe to the world because of sin. And then Jesus goes on. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Are you that serious about sin? Jesus was that serious, deadly serious about fighting sin. We must have it out. It would be better for you, Jesus said, to enter life with one hand and one foot or one eye than to be whole physically and thrown in the fire of hell. That's what Jesus said and that's the seriousness of sin. And he goes from there um, to talk about the man that owned a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away and he goes and brings one back. That also is dealing with the issue of sin. If somebody's wandering away into a life of sin, somebody should go bring them back. Now that is a role certainly of a pastor, an under-shepherd, an overseer of the flock. We're to watch and see if some are straying and we're to want to bring them back. But the whole church is to be doing that. We will watch over one another in brotherly love, right? We're going to go bring somebody back. That's important. We've got to go because sin is devastating and it's serious. And so Jesus talks about the 99 and the 1. Do you see the context? You can connect the dots. Sin, sin, sin. You can connect them. And we go right into the next section, which is the brother who sins against you. What should you do about that? How should we handle that? And that's the context. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Don't leave it off. Don't tolerate it. Don't. Treat it as a light thing or ignore it or avoid it because it's uncomfortable. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Why just between the two? To protect his dignity or her dignity? God's not trying to strip or uncover. He wants the sin dealt with. And so he goes and say, go just... but Don't do it publicly yet, but just between the two of you so that it can be dealt with at that level. And so... When a brother or sister comes to you like this and says, this is something I've seen or this happened, that's kind of a key moment, isn't it, in your life? Especially if you're in a healthy church, right? That's a key moment to listen, isn't it? That's a key moment to to repent, to say I'm sorry, if it's true, if you have sinned against your brother or sister. That's a key moment. That's a moment of humility, a moment of, of, of repentance, just between the two of you. If you listen, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. What a joy that is. There's more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than over 99 that never needed it, right? It's a moment of celebration if they listen to you. That's a great thing. You've brought them back quickly to the straight and narrow and they're walking now properly. What if he doesn't listen, Jesus? Do we give up on him? No, we don't. We roll up our sleeves and get even busier now. If he refuses to listen or he will not listen, take one or two others along so that, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is like a court proceeding, folks. Do you realize that? The church is therefore behaving like a court. And now it's a little more serious. It's still not public knowledge, but now we've got a few more people involved. If he refuses to listen to them, and by the way, if you didn't listen the first time, you had better listen the second time. When three brothers or sisters are sitting in front of you, that is a serious moment for you. Why would you want to harden your heart then? Why dig in your heels through unrepentance? That is a very, very serious moment. And so you should repent and ask forgiveness and you should yield. You should not be stiff-necked like the Jews always were, but you should yield and say, I'm sorry, you're right, I see what I've done. And you ask forgiveness. And at that point, it will be given. It will be given graciously. We're so glad. And again, there's a celebration in heaven over the sinner who repents. But what if he doesn't listen then? It's not finished yet. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What does that mean? Get the whole group together and explain what's happened. And if he repents at that point, you've won your brother over. There's celebration in heaven. Wish it hadn't gone that far. Shouldn't have, but it did. But now at the last, they finally repented. But suppose he refuses to listen to the church. What does Jesus say? Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I've heard it said before, you know, Jesus is so gracious all the time. That means that we need to evangelize them. We need to love them. No, that's not what he's saying. And we know that from Scripture interpret Scripture. What did Paul say at the end of the discipline process? Expel the wicked man from among you. That's what Paul says. Jesus and Paul are in total harmony. So treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector means. He is no longer a member of your church. He's out. He's a pagan. He's a non-believer. He's out. Now, we don't know for sure that he's a non-believer. We're hoping that he isn't. We're hoping that he's just behaving very much like a non-Christian. Masquerading, sadly, as a non-Christian for a long period of time now. And masquerading as a non-christian and we're hoping that this is the major wake-up call that god intended it to be and he'll come to his senses like the prodigal son and come back the way he needs to but jesus said treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector and then he says I, again i tell you the truth whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven you have to know kind of first century jewish background understand this binding and loosing but it had to do with the right of the teachers of the law those who sat in moses seat jesus talks about them in matthew 23 to say what areas the scripture binds concerning your behavior and what area there's freedom or loosing and so it had to do with authoritative interpretation of scripture and the application of it to certain situations there was a binding in this matter because this or that or the other verse or law said such and such, or there's a loosing, a freedom in this matter because the scripture doesn't cover it. Binding and loosing. It means authority, authoritative application of the scripture. And he's giving that to the church, isn't he? The church has the authority because whatever you bind on earth will be having already been bound in heaven. That's what it says. And whatever you loose on earth will be, having already been loosed in heaven. We have authority to reflect on earth what heaven has already said. Binding and loosing. And then he says, I agree. Uh, again, if t- I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Is that about prayer? I'll read it in context. What's the two or three? Aren't they the witnesses that we had earlier? There's a seriousness, and basically Jesus is saying that these two or three are there with his authority in that situation, authority to deal with sin. Now, I'm going to close tonight by simply reading 1 Corinthians 5 without, without a, a excessive comment. I'm going to say one or two things, and then we'll close with the closing hymn. But uh, I would urge you to, to take the scriptures we've looked at and meditate on them. If you have a low view of sin, you will see no need for church discipline. If you realize that sin is what Jesus thought it was, a deadly enemy of your soul, then you'll see why Christ instituted this process of church discipline. Final passage, key passage that we're going to look at tonight briefly is 1 Corinthians 5. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 is just so incredibly clear that I wonder how the church ever gave up church discipline. I wonder about that. You know, people talk about, well, that's just your interpretation. I've heard that many times. Well if language still has meaning, I don't know how else to understand 1 Corinthians 5. It really is not that hard to understand. It may be hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. This is what it says. 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. That you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. That's plain, isn't it? I want to call your attention to one detail that I had never noticed before. And with it, I'll close. I've been talking for the last number of weeks on Sunday evening about the Baptist vision of the church. And the church is made up of regenerate people. Born-again people who are sanctified by the Spirit of God. They are His. That's what a church is or should be. The problem is that the church gets mixed, doesn't it? We well, say, of course. The parable of the wheat and the tares. No. Jesus interpreted that for us, didn't He? He told us what the field was. The field is the world. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's not the church. The church wasn't meant to be mixed The field is the world, all right? So the church is meant to be pure. How do I know that from this text? Look again at the middle. He's talking about yeast. That means sin and sinfulness, wickedness, working its way through. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. In verse 7, he tells them what to do. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. What's the next phrase? Look what it says. As you really are. Do you understand the dynamite there is in that phrase? He's saying the true church has no yeast in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are no non-Christians. There is no ultimately no wickedness. He's purifying the church, getting rid of all sin. And so therefore the church is meant to be pure. Now we know we're not gonna be perfect in this world. We know that. But as you really are is the same way that Paul teaches sanctification everywhere else. You are holy, therefore act holy. You see how it works? He says to the church, therefore, you are free of yeast, therefore act free of yeast. Get rid of the old yeast.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life